Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership globally and work with leaders to co-create a thriving future. Our work includes assisting leaders in navigating disruptive trends and developing strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and in the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted that today our guest is Jeff Wald, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The End of Jobs, Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Jeff is the founder of Work Market, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to manage freelancers. It was acquired by ADP. Jeff began his career in finance, serving as managing director at activist hedge fund Barrington Capital Group, a vice president at venture capital Glenrock, and various roles at J.P. Morgan. Jeff is an active angel investor and startup advisor, as well as serving on numerous public and private boards of directors. He also formally served as an officer in the auxiliary unit of the New York Police Department. Jeff holds an MBA from Harvard University and an MS and BS from Cornell University. The world has witnessed three step functions in technology change, mechanization, electrification, and computerization. These industrial revolutions led to massive increase in productivity, and thus we need fewer workers. With each of these technological breakthroughs, the power balance between companies and workers shifted heavily to companies. The abuses that power of companies instigated employee unrest, counterbalancing forces rose to constrain companies' power, eventually prompting unions, regulations, and the social safety net that brings stability to the relationships. With robots and artificial intelligence, we face the first services revolution. The power balance will again shift massively to companies as new technologies drive productivity increases in the services industry. Many of the last three industrial revolutions transformed manufacturing. Jeff joins me to discuss his new book, The End of Jobs and What the Future of Work Is. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. What do you want to tell our listeners about yourself that I haven't yet mentioned? I feel like you've covered it. That was, that was a great intro. Nothing more to say except that I took a little hiatus from New York City, went down to Florida. So I'm talking to you now from the great state of Florida, but I will be headed back to New York in about a month. So is this a COVID-related transition or just better weather in Florida in the winter? 100% COVID-related. I am not fully, I'm not not ready to adopt the snowbird lifestyle just yet. <laughs> in time, because I got to tell you, these, these cats have got it figured out down here. Yeah, we were in Miami in January and boy, was it nice to be out yeah. of Ohio snow and, and gloom. So let's jump into your book. Tell us about what inspired you to write it and give us a little bit of the background? Well, I think unlike most authors, I was inspired to write out of frustration and annoyance as I would go to future of work conferences, you know, as the founder of Work Market, which was the is the leading piece of software helping companies transform their labor model to a more on-demand structure. I'd have the opportunity to speak, to be on panels. And I will tell you, Maureen, it's very frustrating for those of us that are very data-driven, that are very evidence-driven, to hear people talk in a public setting with things that you know are false, that have just a 0% probability of coming true. 
And that frustration led me to start writing a book focused on the on-demand economy because that's where my roots were in this future of work world. But it quickly morphed into an entire look at the labor force, including remote work, including robots and AI, and a very deep look into our evidence bases, our evidence being the history of work, the data around the world of work, and how companies actually engage labor. Because if you're not looking through those lenses, I'm not sure why you have any business making any predictions on the future of work. But if you do, you have a very low probability of being accurate. So where does the data come from that you're using? That is a great question. Look, there are tremendous data sources in the world of work. They've gotten better and better over time, which is to say, historically, they weren't great. We think about the on-demand economy. One of the biggest challenges we have are the data sources. The data sources are generally just surveys. And when you do a survey of 5,000, 8,000 people, it's good data. A little difficult to translate that to a labor force of 164 million people. And so we look for whatever data sources we can. The Bureau of Labor Statistics is a wealth of information provided by the Department of Labor at the federal level. I will say that I think McKinsey does a wonderful job. And most importantly, the World Economic Forum, I think, does a fantastic, fantastic job. I will tell you, if you're only going to read one thing about the future of work, well, actually, if you're only going to read one thing, you should read my book. But if you're going to read two things about the future of work, the second one should be the World Economic Forum's reports on the future of work. They are doing tremendous, tremendous work. That's encouraging to hear because I've actually been on those panels and I use both the World Economic Forum and McKinsey. I would be really disappointed to hear you say those people suck and you're completely wrong. So They are amazing. <laughs> yeah. But what happens is that people misquote them all the time, mm. like the McKinsey report. People say, oh, McKinsey predicts 50% of all jobs are going to go because of robots. You're like, no, 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 no. That's not what the report said. That's a headline that you're taking and misinterpreting and then causing fear. But those reports are incredibly well done by incredibly wonderful people. So now that you've quoted that specific statistic, give our listeners the real data, because I think I know that quote, but I'm not going to throw it out and get it wrong. So when we do the work and we look industry by industry, job function by job function, and we take into account not just what may happen, and it's a very important, very important word there is may happen mm -hmm. in regards to how technological evolution may occur and what types of functions within those industries, within those companies may start to get displaced. We also need to think about the pace of displacement because just because a new tech exists and it can automate the job doesn't mean that it gets rolled out immediately. We start to see, when we look at the 704 different job functions and we start to break down the component tasks that make up those functions. And we start to think intelligently about the customer service aspects and a host of other things because you know, the technology has existed to displace every waiter and waitress in the world, but it hasn't happened because people don't want that. That's not the experience they want. So again, just because the tech exists doesn't mean the job goes. But we look at those 704 different job functions, we think about it, and then we start to come to conclusions about which percentages of those jobs may go and you start to do the math and you end up with 10 to 15% of jobs over a 20 year period will get automated away with technology. And one of the things I remember reading was some percentage of jobs like 50% will have components that are automated. Yes, 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 yes. So look, when we look at those 704 different job functions, 
And this is where you got to actually do the math. And I've got a bunch mm -hmm. of very involved spreadsheets that nobody but me finds that interesting, where you look 704 different rows, you look at the component tasks that make up a job. If the component tasks of the job are 100% what we call repetitive high volume tasks, the same task over and over again, history would tell us that aside from customer service interactions and a few other variables, those jobs get automated away almost in their entirety, but it depends on the timing, depending on capital deployment and how companies adapt. When you see a job that has 50% of its component tasks, and you know the ge geometric relationship tends to hold between 100% and 50%, you see about half of the jobs go. But once you get below that 50% threshold, you see very few, if any, jobs go, and you see a cobot scenario, you see the human take the higher value, more customer service-oriented task, and the robot do the mundane task, and you see very few, if any, jobs lost. So we see a geometric relationship from 100% to 50%, and then after 50%, it drops off a cliff. So those are important to know if I'm an executive investing in technology, and also if I'm an employee or a young person trying to figure out what my first or my next job is, that I wanna select something that is less likely to be replaced by a cobot or a robot in the next five years. It is. Now, I appreciate how dorky and geeky and deep into the weeds we just got with our 704 different based on different uh, percentages, but let's use a real world example, mm -hmm. if we may. I was talking with a friend of mine, Jason Wang, who works with the formerly incarcerated and trains them to be truck drivers. And I was explaining to another friend how amazing this program is and what wonderful work they do. And he said, well, why was he training them to be truck drivers? That job's going to get eliminated in the next 10 years. I was like, why? Why do you think that? Well, automated vehicles, autonomous vehicles. And here's the thing. That is a simplistic conclusion. And often, Maureen, we find simplistic conclusions in the world of work are usually wrong. I would say they're usually wrong in most circumstances, but in the world of work, the technology that is bringing autonomous vehicles to life may be road ready in the next five years. Maybe. That's kind of the best case estimate from the people working in that space. I would argue it's probably 10 years. You can make the argument it will never be ready. It is so complicated and all the edge cases are so, so unique and difficult that it may never actually be ready. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt and let's say 10 years, which again, I view as a realistic scenario. Then you have to get the road itself ready. You need sensoring technologies, repair technologies. That truck can't just go into the local Amco and go beep, beep, you know, my, my tire popped. It, you need specific infrastructure to repair this stuff. You need the legal and regulatory framework in which that truck operates. What happens when mm -hmm. it hits somebody? What happens when the cargo gets damaged? That may be another 10 years to get that sorted out. And by the way, that's an optimistic scenario. And then you have the capital deployment, right? The trucking companies need to replace their fleets. Our friends at Knight, Knight Swift, the largest trucking company in the United States, they have 18,000 trucks. If their normal capital expenditure of trucks per year were tripled and the cost of the truck halved, both unrealistic scenarios, it would still take them 10 years to replace their fleet. Now you start looking 30, maybe 40 years out where the job of the truck driver is going to be substantially impacted. It is the simplistic conclusion of, oh, autonomous vehicles exist, therefore truck driver jobs are going to go, that the my book and my work tries to rail against to say, no, 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 no. Let's think through that specific function and all the different impacts that go into jobs in that industry before we draw any conclusions. 
I really appreciate that, especially when we think of formerly incarcerated people whose work time horizon, if you're talking about someone midlife, could be 10 to 20 years. Whether full automation happens in 30 years, that's irrelevant for the time horizon of of that individual or that cluster of people. It's fair. And I will tell you this, the problem that we have for truck drivers in the United States right now is there is a huge shortage. There's a huge shortage in a lot of skilled trades, but truck drivers in particular, it, it irks me in as much as I have a feeling, I have a feeling here that the reason that there's a shortage is because people say, oh, don't go into that industry. That's just going to die and go away. And you want to say, no, 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 it is a very well-paying job. It is a middle-class job. And it is something that people should be considering as a career in the medium term and maybe even in the long term. Can you give us another example? So that one will go away 30 years from now. Well, my favorite example is one not necessarily moving into the future, but from the past, which is the ATM. Look, the ATM didn't disguise what it wanted to be. It's, it's in its name. It's a machine that automates the job of the teller. At the time of the ATM appearing at every bank branch in the United States, which was about 1995, there were 500,000 bank tellers employed. Do you want to take a guess as to what everyone predicted about bank teller employment in the United States in 1995, Maureen? I was working in the technology industry. We thought it was going to go down dramatically, and it probably hasn't, right? It has not. There are 600,000 bank tellers employed in the United States today. It has increased by 20%. Now, when we see that, we shouldn't draw the wrong conclusions from that either. Mm -hmm. Because the component tasks, back to our, our my geeked out conversation here on the component tasks of each of those 704 different job functions, the component tasks of the bank teller, about 50% are the repetitive high volume task of giving out cash, taking in cash, checks, and all those other things that the machine can do. So we would anticipate seeing about 50% job loss in the job of bank teller. And we actually kind of did because the number of tellers per branch went from 21 on average in the United States, mm -hmm. to 13. So we saw a very large reduction in the number of tellers per branch, but the number of bank branches in the United States almost doubled because of two things. One is just normal economic growth. So even if nothing else had happened, we just would have had more bank branches because we have more humans in the United States, there's more economic activity, we need more bank branches. But also it was deregulation in the banking industry, which allowed banks to compete across state lines and compete in, in all kinds of other ways. And therefore, now we have a bank branch in every single corner. And so because of it, the number of tellers in the United States has increased by 20%. The point is not to pick on the bank teller or whatever. The point is to say any simplistic conclusion, oh, the ATM exists, therefore bank tellers are going to go, belays the complexity that goes into labor resource planning. And we should be thoughtful, we should be analytical, we should use our critical thinking skills if we're going to make predictions about the future of work, not just say, oh, this tech exists, that job goes, because that is not how the world of work evolves, and that is not the future of work. You're with Jeff Wald and Maureen Metcalf, and we are talking about the future of work and Jeff's new book, which is The End of Jobs and What the Future of Work Is. So Jeff, for our listeners, can you lay out the biggest premise of the book and the way it's set up so that people can kind of get a picture in their mind of what questions are you answering? Sure. So the premise of the book is let's study the history of work. Let's study the data in the world of work. And let's look at how companies actually engage labor. And let's use that foundation, 
once we've established all three. And let's make some high probability predictions on the future of work. And so the book does flow along those lines. It starts out with a very deep dive in the history of work. And we look through the three industrial revolutions that have occurred, mechanization, electrification, and computerization, as you articulated in the beginning. We look at what lessons can be learned from there as companies and workers had to adjust that balance of power because a new technology came on that was so disruptive. And then we look at the data and we look at the data over time, look at the data today and what the world of work really consists of because a surprising number of people make predictions that are just mathematically incorrect or impossible, which always fascinates me. And then we do what is called the labor equation. We kind of take a deep dive with a lot of CHROs out there and a lot of consultants that advise C-suites on labor force transformation. And we try to come up with a framework on how companies actually engage workers, whether it's through automation or in the context of, do I need a full-time worker, a part-time worker, a freelancer or a temp for that type of role? And then we combine all that to start saying, here is what we think is actually going to happen, the reality. You know, I juxtapose the reality from the Skynet scenario, which is the, oh my gosh, the robots are going to take all our jobs and we're screwed. And the Rosie Jetson scenario, which is robots are going to be everywhere. They're going to do our mundane tasks and the world's going to be amazing and wonderful. And we can focus on science and literature and love and happiness. So we have the dystopian and the utopian predictions. And then I kind of drive that middle ground where the truth usually lies as to, well, here's what's actually going to happen with a high probability of confidence because it is the future and we don't know what is going to happen. And so that is what the book tries to drive home, which is let's look at history, let's look at data, let's think about how companies actually engage workers, and let's use that to start making some predictions about the future of work. With that framework then, what lessons can we learn from the past three industrial revolutions and the current state of the labor market? Well, I'll tell you this, the industrial revolutions tend to go through three phases. The first phase is what I call the freak out phase. I actually think we're kind of past that, almost fully past it, I should say. In the freak out phase, you have a bunch of doomsayers. Oh my God, all the jobs are going to go. Oh my gosh, humanity is going to fall. Society is going to crumble. And you get past that because that's never the case. And then we move to the second phase, which is the dislocation phase. In this phase, people kind of gloss over, Maureen, when they think about the history of work. People say, oh, everyone always predicts the end of jobs, but then jobs are plentiful and everything's better. And that's how it's happened each time. And you Mm -hmm. say, yeah, that is true, but let's not leave out the transition phase. And the transition phase is a disaster historically. Let's hope Mm -hmm. it won't be a disaster this time, but historically we have done this transition phase very poorly. And that transition starts when jobs really do start to go. We have workers, we have certain geographies, that have tremendous social and economic dislocation because of those job losses. And societies do a poor, poor, poor job of retraining those workers because as those job losses are occurring, more jobs are being created in the economy, both through normal normal economic growth and because the technology is enabling new jobs, the technologies that destroy jobs actually enable them as well. And we do a poor job of moving workers from the industries and the functions that are dying to the industries and the functions that are growing. Because then we get to that third phase, which as a society, we have ever more jobs and a higher standard of living, people working few hours to get that better standard of living. And I am 100% confident that that will happen again. But we are in that dislocation phase now in regards to the robots and AI. 
And it is something to be very mindful of because the workers that are left behind tend to become very nationalistic, tend to become very populist. And in the United States, that leads to different election outcomes than we would have maybe anticipated, both currently and you know, when we look back in the past. And in Europe, these are times of actual revolution. I mean, there's actual blood on the streets. And so it's something to be very mindful of because if we can do this a little, just a little bit better than we've done in the past, if we can be a little bit more supportive as a society for the people whose jobs have been lost, if the technologies that are destroying jobs actually end up helping with the retraining process. And I have the great pleasure of being an advisor to the X Prize as they launched a prize mm. on this, the uh, rapid reskilling program. Then we have a, a hope that this transition won't be as jarring, won't be as difficult. And I am optimistic on that front. Now, that's where the World Economic Forum, again, has very interesting data from two years ago. I think their December report that said the percentage of jobs that will be impacted by X percentage. And we're in that five-year window. This isn't some future thing. This is today, yesterday, the, during the pandemic. I assume this was accelerated dramatically, especially the percentage of the population who already has low savings, mm -hmm. low economic resilience, and in some cases also low physical resilience, are impacted more and less likely to get retraining. It's so true. Look, the automation wheel that occurs time and time again in the history of work through these three industrial revolutions and today will hit the workers with the least bargaining power, right? Where the supply and demand balance is the worst because they're in jobs, as we said earlier, that involve repetitive high volume tasks. If you're in a job that revolves repetitive high volume tasks, that job is a low skilled job. It is a job that can be done by anybody because it's the same thing over and over again. It's a person with very little bargaining power because it can be done by anybody. Therefore, the supply and demand balance in the repetitive high volume job is very different than the supply and demand balance for a high-end surgeon or a blockchain developer, something that takes years of schooling, years of expertise to be able to get that job. And so those workers are displaced the most. That burden falls on those in society that can least handle that burden of dislocation from an economic standpoint, job loss, and the costs associated with retraining. Uh, and they fall on the segments of society that are the most disadvantaged. And so when I talk about the Skynet scenario, the bad scenario, to me, it's not robots taking all the jobs. It is the exacerbation of existing gaps in society and the struggle that a society has when those gaps become so wide, because history is not have good lessons for societies that allow those gaps to exist for too long. That is the revolution scenario yep. in Europe. And I don't want to get political, but we have seen some evidence that in the U.S. we also have those challenges. 100%. 100%. Look, it's easy to say that as a society, we have more jobs. It's easy to say, oh, there's a higher standard of living. That is no solace to the communities where jobs have been lost. That's no solace to the family who can't make ends meet. And so, again, history would tell us that anytime you have that kind of instability in society, society demands the change one way or the other. So this is a bit of a side trip, but I noticed in your bio, you're also active on boards. And I'm right now in an ESG certification program. So environmental, social, government. Sure. I know you know what that is, but for our listeners who don't, the tug of war between, is it the responsibility of the company who can retrain 
with less overhead than the government, but mm-hmm. may have less incentive versus government programs that are hopefully last resort. Do you have a point of view? And even better, is it the book? Because I know you talk about the social contract. We do touch on this in the book. There is a debate to be had. Who owns this retraining? Does it go with some of the trends that we talk about in the book, the trends of convergence, where every worker is becoming an on-demand worker, and the on-demand worker 100% owns it for themselves because there is no company. They are the company. They're the entrepreneur. So is it the individual, both the on-demand individual and the person that has a full-time job? Maybe. Is it the education system? Do we need to change our focus on vocational schools and technical schools? Do we need to change our focus on lifelong learning? Probably. Is it the government? What role does the government play in supporting the education system and giving the incentives to the individuals and giving incentives to companies? Or is it the company? Or is it some combination thereof? Because I'll tell you this, if you're an individual and you're waiting for your company to do it, or you're blaming your school because they didn't train you right, you own your training, you own your development. Nobody owns it more than you do. It would be great if you had a company that supported you. It would be great if the education system made it easy. It would be great to the government, but don't wait on anybody. And the same is true for companies. Don't sit there and wait. You have skills gaps now. If you're sitting there and you're waiting for the education system or the government, you're gonna be out of business real quick because nobody should wait on the government to do anything. And we, should, we need to own these things. It reminds me of one of my favorite jokes in the book. I appreciate that was a tough transition to a joke, but you know, the CFO says to the CEO, what if we train all these people and they leave? And the CEO says, what if we don't train them and they stay? And so you need to be mindful. This is your workforce. There are trends around decreasing amount of time that people spend at a job. And I think a lot of those trends have been misinterpreted. If you're an employer of choice and you're doing right by your people, you can expect those people to stay for some time. And if you're not an employer of choice, expect them to go. This is a fluid marketplace. We are moving to moving away. And when I when I called the, the, the book, The End of Jobs, it was not that I think the number of jobs is going to decrease. As I hope I've made clear, I think it is a very clear trend in the world of work, almost uninterrupted in the last 200 years, that we have created ever more jobs. So I do not think the job is going. But what the job is, is changing. That nine to five, one office, one manager job, that job is on the way out. It has been for 20 years. Its demise has been accelerated by COVID unquestionably as we move towards the fluid team-based work from anywhere, always on job. That is the job of the future. And that job has a lot of fluidity to it, has a lot of team-oriented work to it. It certainly is more remote focused. So no, not going to that office. And the always on part, I don't think I need to explain that to anybody how we are no longer nine to five, but uh, we're all getting emails from people we need to reply to at 10, 11 at night. So how do we renegotiate the social contract to ensure fairness for workers, set clear rules for companies and provide stability? And this is back to, again, the social transition that that composition of jobs is changing And for the folks who are least prepared, they are often not able to afford to do retraining. This will go back to our lessons from history. Let's start with this. Society and companies and everybody in society, every component of society does not like instability. We like stability because stability allows us to plan for the future. When things get so out of whack because companies 
get so much power in that relationship in the companies versus worker, that balance of power because of the new tech, there have to be counterbalancing forces for the worker. There just have to be. And historically, as you articulated in the beginning, there are three counterbalancing forces, unions, the social safety net, and regulation. So how are these going to play out in the future? Unclear, right? Will we have a more activist regulatory state? Possibly, you know, there are positives to that, there are negatives to it. Will we have a very different looking social safety net almost definitively? And we hear a lot of conversations about UBI and there are a lot of positives, there are a lot of negatives and there are conversations about incentives to work in there that need to be taken into account. But the union movement is the one I find the most fascinating. And I think about, Maureen, I think about the Fight for 15. Mm -hmm. Fight for 15 is an example of an evolution of the union movement. It started in, in the union, actually out of the SEIU in Seattle, run by a brilliant man named David Rolfe at the time. And they came up with this Fight for 15. This is going to be the movement. We're going to push it forward. But the movement was hijacked by non-union grassroots activists all around the country. People united in common cause, none other than we think this is right. We think this is fair. This wasn't the service union and the transportation workers union and the hospitalities workers union. Like, or, no, no, no. This was just people organized via social media coming out onto the streets, writing letters to their representatives and saying, this is fair. This is what we believe the economic pie needs to, at a minimum, be adjusted to. Because we all know the data over the last 40 years, workers' wages have been uh, nominally stagnant. And they've been successful. We have a number of states that are now on a path to a $15 minimum wage. It is a vow, incredibly important policy of the new administration to push forward at a federal level. And so this is an example of workers uniting in common cause. And you know, we can say the union movement's been in decline, and that is true. It's been in structural decline for the last 70 years. We're down to 7% of the workforce that belongs to a union. But the attributes, the goals of the union are morphing into new organizations, social media-driven, activist-led, that I think bode well for the movement back to stability and a kind of leveling out of the balance of power because it has to happen. And if it doesn't happen to the traditional union movement, we can debate and discuss the benefits and the challenges of the traditional union movement over time. It will happen another way and the fight for 15 is a great example of that occurring. The move to 15, and I'm not arguing right or wrong, will also have consequences in the automation space. If I can automate jobs so that the work is performed less expensively, and if I am at a very low profit margin, I may not have a choice, mm -hmm. assuming I've got the capital resources. So, so there is also that fight for 15 may accelerate the reduction of those jobs in a minimum wage space. There are actions and reactions, no question. It is curious to me in a just geeky way, how complex these equations are, back to your earlier point, that any action we take or decision we take will drive this very complex situation in ways that often people aren't foreseeing and how quickly that changes could also be of dire consequences for the people who lose their jobs and are living on the margins. Now let's move into 
what you are projecting with some high probability with regard to remote work, especially post-COVID? Well, Maureen, shocking nobody. I'm going to start with some history here, and we're going to start with some data, and then we're going to talk about how companies engage workers, because that is kind of the point of, of the book, and, and really one of my points in life is let's use some evidence. So 10 years ago, 1.5% of the U.S. workforce worked remotely, and remote has a very specific definition. It is more than 50% of the time you are not in that office, and the more than 50% is super important because it means from a tax nexus standpoint, you're not a commuter and you don't go to that office. So it grew to 3% pre-pandemic, 100% growth over a 10-year period, which for those of us whose lives are boring enough that we study labor statistics all the time, you very rarely see that. You only see it when you start with a very low base, obviously the 1.5%, and when there is a implementing technology. And the technology here was the beginning of these Zooms and WebExes and everything else, the beginning of the project management software that allowed for the disaggregation of work. People didn't need to be in the same place. And those things drove a 100% increase in remote work to 3%. Now, at the height of the pandemic, we were at 40% of the U.S. workforce working remotely. It's important to remember that only 42% of the U.S. workforce can work remotely. Right? A lot of people forget that. I was on stage the other day and this guy said, oh, I think 50% of the workforce is going to work remote post-pandemic. And I was like, how do you juxtapose that with the fact that only 42% can? He said, oh, I didn't know that. I was like, well, shouldn't you know that? Shouldn't you know that if you're going to shoot your mouth off and make a prediction? Anyway, we were at 40%. And the things that drive the future are how companies actually engage workers. And so when we think about the 3% we were at beforehand and why it wasn't greater is there were two big impediments. One was mindset. It was that manager that said, look, I know all the studies say remote workers are happier, they're healthier, they're more engaged, they're more productive, all of which is true, by the way. Every single study we find on remote work is incredibly positive. And the manager would say, yeah, I know all that, but I think magic happens when people are together. I think productivity equals presence. So I want everyone in the office. And I often would debate these people and they would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But and I would say, well, what data do you have to support your point of view? And they would say, oh, I don't have any data. It's just what I think. I'd throw my arms out like, all right, I don't know how to debate this with you, but good luck to you, sir. Uh, and the second impediment were the policies and the procedures and the infrastructure necessary to enable remote work. It's one thing to say, sure, Maureen, you can work remotely. It's another to make sure that you can access all the company systems. Because if I tell you you can work remotely, but I don't give you access to the systems, I really haven't enabled you to be successful. You can't get anything done. If we say that you can be a remote employee, but we don't make a remote option for every single meeting, a standard where people have to remember, oh, Maureen's in this meeting, therefore we have to have a remote option. No, no, no. That means Maureen's going to get left out sometimes because people aren't going to remember all the time. It's a very different thing to say something as a corporation to put the policies and the procedures and the infrastructure behind it. And companies hadn't put the policies, procedures, and infrastructure behind it, some of which from a security standpoint. In March of 2020, mindsets, policies, procedures, and infrastructure all changed overnight. You know, I didn't really care. It doesn't matter what your point was is you have no choice. Everyone's going remote. They can and so we saw a substantive change. Now, when we look at the data around what workers want and what companies want, a lot of surveys have been done over the last 12 months. We are finding some very interesting stuff. 
there are a few workers that want to go back full time. They want to be there nine to five, five mm -hmm. days a week. It's very few, less than 5%, but it's not zero. It's not zero. But we have actually almost an equivalent number of people that want to stay remote 100%. It's about 5%. And the middle 90 to 95%, they want what's called a flexible work arrangement. So more than 50% of the time they're in the office, but not 100%. It's, I want to be there three days a week and then at home two days. I want to be there three weeks a month and then not there for a month. And that flexible work arrangement is going to become the hallmark of the world of work going forward. It is not remote work. It's very different than remote work. And it's important to remember that most remote workers, like 90% plus, live within a commutable distance of the office. So this is not, hey, I'm going to go off to Idaho or I'm going to move to Bali and continue to work. No, no, no. You're going to come in one week a quarter, two weeks a quarter, something like that, even as a remote worker. So when we look at that, we start to see the data shake out that about 8% are going to be qualified as remote, meaning more than 50% of the time not in the office, but very few at 100% of the time not in the office. And we start to see about 32 to 33% in a flexible work arrangement, keeping in mind with both of those, the natural limit of 42%, that that is the most that we can do in the US economy. And just to put a fine point on that, clearly people in manufacturing, in transportation, in entertainment, in a lot of service industries can't work remotely. And so when you add all those sectors up, you get 58% of the economy can't work remotely. And that 42%, by the way, just as a final thought, that is the highest in the world. The US is 42%. Most economies are well, well, well below that. I've read the McKinsey studies. They do a really nice job of breaking out which workers will work one day a week in the office, which ones will work one day a week at home. And, and it is an interesting gradation of who will and who won't and who's struggling with challenges by being home all the time versus who would rather just never go into the office. It is interesting that there is a lot of information available for people interested and in trying to think about what are the options to reshape their workplace. Look, the reason I so praise McKinsey and the World Economic Forum, PricewaterhouseCoopers does a lot of great work on this, Deloitte does a lot of great work on this, is because they're doing the work. They're actually doing the work and the work is hard. The majority of people that make predictions are like my friend, you know, my, my buddy that said, oh, 50% of the world's going to work, you know, the country's going to work remote. That's what people are saying out there. And it's dangerous because this stuff is complicated. The ATM example shows it's complicated. The trucking example shows it's complicated. And you need to do the work if you're going to make a prediction. You need to look at the data. You need to think and talk to actual companies and how companies actually engage workers. You need to really look at history and how things have evolved in the past. Not that they're going to go the exact same way, but it's, it's a roadmap for thinking about the future. And so I will often praise the organizations that actually do the work. Uh, even if I don't agree necessarily with their conclusions, I know how they got there. Well, and for people listening, it's really important, as Jeff's pointing out, that we have sources that we know are well-researched and valid rather than often if we're not looking at the research or looking at organizations we know are well-researched, it's easy to take for granted that when we hear something, it's accurate. Very true. So let's true. shift to the, is it the X Prize? Well, it's the future of work prize. I'm happy to talk about the X Prize. I have the pleasure of serving as an advisor 
and they have a rapid reskilling program going on, a contest going on right now. We just actually winnowed down the 200 teams that submitted bids down to the 10 finalists. And so they've got, I believe it's six months to present their findings and they're I'll spend a second on this, which is because it's super important, the work that they're doing, everything we talked about in retraining comes to light here, which is they need to take 60 workers and in 60 days have them completely retrained for a middle-class job. And so whether they're doing a different process or a different educational structure or a different technology, there's a great company out there called Transfer VR, which is using VR headsets to let people go into the game. And in the game, it is a live interactive Thing. If you, you know, if they're training you to be a bartender and they tell you to make a Manhattan and you go to grab vodka, you know, no, that's incorrect. Let's have you grab it. Oh, that is the correct. Oh, wait, you poured too much. So it's interactive and it's behavior optimizing and you can actually learn that way. And that company's killing it, even though they are not in the XPRIZE program yet. Because I love the XPRIZE so much, as I was writing this book, I'll tell you this, Maureen, as I'm sure you've interviewed many, many authors, writing a book is really hard. It's not fun. I did not enjoy this process. It took me seven years. And at the end of year five, maybe it was five and a half, my publisher was like, you know, you only have 150 pages here. Like you need to get to 250 pages or we can't publish it. And I remember thinking, I don't really have anything left to say. I've, I can refine everything that I've said, but I don't, I don't like to repeat. And a very good friend of mine came up with the idea of using some Tom Sawyer here and allowing other people to do the work for me. And specifically, it was the hundreds of leaders in the world of work that I had the pleasure of interviewing for this book. And I went back to a number of them and said, hey, would you consider writing a short essay, a contribution to the book on what you think the world of work looks like in 2040? I mean, look, Maureen, I have my framework, history, data, how companies actually engage workers, and I use that to make predictions. I don't pretend that it's perfect. I don't pretend that it's the only way to do it. But by asking these men and women who are actually shaping the future of work, these are the heads of some of the largest staffing firms in the country, heads of the largest labor unions, heads of industry associations, the people in the C-suite, the CHROs, some of the largest companies in the world. What do you think the world of work looks like in 2040? And they wrote some incredibly beautiful pieces. It was absolutely wonderful, and it was such an honor to have them engage in it. And as I was doing this, I thought I'd borrow a page from the X Prize, and I personally put up a $10 million prize for whichever of them is the most correct. Now, because I'm not capitalized the way the X Prize is capitalized, I made this very far in the future. So in 2040, all of the authors, God willing, will all be alive and, and in good health, will get a vote. They can't vote for their own piece but they will reread all the pieces on January 1st, 2040, and they will submit in to me who they believe was the most accurate. Because we have some people that have very optimistic views of the world, that Rosie Jetson scenario. We have some people that have very dystopian views of the world. I can, you can get one, one guess as what the labor leaders, where, where they fall in this. And then I've got one writer who basically wrote, a little reductionist here, but basically wrote, eh, it's all the same. It's all kind of the same. Little change here, a little change there, but for the most part, it's the same. And so we have writers that are all over the map. So I'm, I was super honored that they're a part of the book. I was um, super excited to see uh, which one of the, uh, the writers ends up proving to be the most correct. I will be interested in 2040 to see where this shakes out, and I'll be thinking about it along the way. 
So we've got about three minutes left. Can you, in two minutes, tell our listeners what you hope they take away? What are the top two to three points? I hope people take away that in thinking about the future of work, you need to not go to simple conclusions because they're usually wrong. You need to not paint with a broad brush because the world of work is complex and you need to get into the details. You need to appreciate that on-demand work, as much as everyone loves to run around and say, oh, on-demand labor is going to be the majority of the labor force. No, it is not. On-demand labor is not new. We have been here before as we think about this fourth industrial revolution, and we will have job losses unquestionably, but we will have more jobs created than we will lose, and that retraining is going to be the big challenge that we face as a society. And so if we can have people think critically, think analytically, and really start to plan, I think we can do a lot better in this transition than societies have done in the last three industrial revolutions. And so the last thing I'd leave everybody with is a lot of optimism about the world of work. Reality as to the difficulty of the transition, but optimism that we will do this transition better and complete optimism and complete confidence that we will end up in a much, much better place as we always do, more jobs, higher standard of living, and people working fewer hours to get that higher standard of living. That's a nice way to wrap up. I don't even want to follow with anything, but I will. Just a couple of final thoughts. Obviously, the world of work is changing dramatically for the worker and the workplace. And specifically, leaders need to be prepared to adjust to the changes and to adapt quickly. And so hopefully the leaders in the audience today are thinking about how do these changes impact my organizations? Do I have a social responsibility to retrain my people and redeploy them rather than assuming I can exit them and magically hire the right people, which we don't necessarily have a pool of those labeled right people sitting waiting for work right now. So there is a responsibility to retrain And for each of us thinking about the impacts we're making on the society in which we live and operate. So how do people get a hold of you, get your book? Well, I wish I could say that we were at a point in history where you could walk into any bookstore and and get it. But given the pandemic and the state of bookstores, the best place to get it is this little online seller called Amazon. We were fortunate enough to hit number one in all of Amazon's HR categories when the book came out. You can always reach me on LinkedIn. It's really the only social uh, media I spend time on or on Twitter, which is the only place I couldn't get Jeff Wald. At Twitter, I'm at Jeffrey Wald. But always happy to debate and discuss anybody on the future of work as this is an evolving topic and one that we need to constantly be thinking about. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. I trust that you found this conversation incredibly insightful. We hope that you contact Jeff buy his book, like us on whatever social media platform you are listening, and listen to future shows. Our goal is to ensure that leaders are continually retooling themselves to be better at their craft of leadership because what you do matters and impacts the world in which we live and work and the quality of outcomes that we experience. (music) 